What's up, guys? This is Yeezy Bus, and I've got a brand new podcast about sneaker culture, Legit Check. I'm going to be highlighting some of the most talented people in fashion, music, and streetwear. This is the first and only podcast of its kind, and we're happy to be giving people what they've been waiting for. Don't miss these exclusive interviews. Listen to Legit Check on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Now, this is very exciting. We're on location, which we don't do that often, but we're in Aspen, Colorado, beautiful Aspen, Colorado, at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And when we found out that Mitch Landrew was going to be here, we immediately thought, what a great podcast guest, because he's very much been in the news of late, not only because he's head of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, but also because that incredible speech he gave about taking down the Confederate statues in New Orleans. And he comes from a really storied New Orleans and Louisiana family. His dad was the last white mayor of New Orleans before him. He was known as a real progressive on civil rights. He desegregated the city. His sister was a senator from Louisiana for many years. He's the fifth of nine kids. He's got a lot of interesting stuff to and say. And he's a musical theater nut. So <laughs> Which of is course, the real reason Katie had, had him on. He had me a Jesus Christ superstar. So we had so much fun talking to Mitch. He told me I could call him Mitch instead Although, of Mr. Mayor. Honestly, you were a little disappointed that he didn't go full Man of La Mancha no, with you. No, I really wanted that. You know, I made up for his shyness by belting out a few of those songs myself. But we talked to him about life in the Big Easy, and we talked to him about climate change. And of course, we talked to him about that incredibly well-received and eloquent speech. So here he is, Mitch Landrew. I became the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors yesterday I know, in Miami. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. And But I'm really intent in this time of getting people to think that although we think about Washington all the time and it's appropriate that we do so, the national policy doesn't just get set in Washington. Mayors across the country are really doing innovative things. We're learning from each other and we're creating national policies from local action. And that's really exciting And so before we uh, talk more about the Conference of Mayors and about that extraordinary speech you made on May 19th about Confederate memorials coming down in New Orleans, I want to give our listeners a better sense of who you are and where you come from, as Admiral Stockdale said. From the greatest place in the world, (laughs) New Orleans, Louisiana, the soul of America. You're you're the fifth of nine kids. Your dad was the mayor of New Orleans. I'll tell you the story real quick. My, My father was uh, one of two children. His his mother had a third grade education. His father worked as an employee of the city in the public service building. He turned the lights on and off in the city. He grew up in a house that was 17 feet wide, literally slept in a storehouse. He, uh, he found a way to get himself through Jesuit High School and then Loyola, where he met my mother. And uh, they fell in love and they wound up getting married and they went right away to the Pentagon where my dad served. And in the next 11 years, they had nine children. So my oldest sister is Mary, who people remember as now as a United States senator. But I'm sure she appreciates she, you she pointing out the oldest. <laughs> the oldest. <laughs> but she's bossy, you know. Yeah. Um, but there were nine of us, and we grew up in the first integrated neighborhood in the city of New Orleans. My dad got himself into the state legislature, didn't know anybody, and this first act in office was to vote against the governor's plan to keep the schools segregated in the state. He was one of two people. And uh, on that day that he voted for that, Leander Perez, who was a great racist sheriff, stuck his finger in his chest and said, you're dead. 
Wow. And from that moment, from there until today, you know, our family kind of grew up in the Broadmoor neighborhood of New Orleans. As I said, my mother had nine children in 11 years. And your dad we, was known and, and is known as a hero of civil yeah, rights. I mean, he yeah, was the one who integrated New Orleans true. city government. That's true. And it's because we grew up, how we grew up and where we grew up. And in a middle-class neighborhood, we both, we all went to parochial schools, the same school. We walked to school every day. We caught the bus to school. All of us have gone on to, you know, grow up and get married. We have 38 children between us wow. on the Landry side of the that family. That must be so, so fun at the holidays it gets or a, not. Yeah, it does. <laughs> when it, you you, you, you got to make sure you get you get to the table first. Yeah. I would say that. And so we grew up in the city of New Orleans and we've been part of the city for a long time. And uh, and it's been a great experience. You but know. politics are sort of in your—I mean, uh, it's just you, well, Mary, and your dad you went know, into I politics because your mom, Verna, said— I told you, Mitchell, you've got politics in the marrow of your bones. <laughs> well, the reason she says that is because I was a very bad little boy. And as I told you, she had nine kids and I kept running outside. So she she chained me to the front porch with a leash. <laughs> Seriously. She did. She did. It's terrible. And I think I, she'd she didn't get in a lot of trouble if she did that today. No, she, she, she actually tied me to the front porch. And so I stood out there all day. We were playing because we all played in the street. So I wasn't by myself. And uh, she said, that's where you learned how to tell people hello, because you kept trying to get them to let you and go. because you, you were to survive so that horrible and abuse. And I managed to and, survive. Yeah. And so she, she's mortified by that story, but it's true. But she's otherwise a lovely woman <laughs> and a great mother and a great grandma, of the, as I said, of 38 kids. Wow. One of the fun things we learned about you, Mitch, is that you were really into musical theater when you were in high school. I was. And that you starred in Man of La Mancha. You Crazy. Were how do y'all know all of this? Well, Who told you these Brian does research. extensive research. Oh, my God. You were, okay, I'll uh, tell you Don the story. And you were in. Jesus Christ Superstar. I was. And, uh, well, tell them who I was. And what were you in Jesus? I was Jesus. You you were Jesus. <laughs> That's the part you want. You want the title <laughs> I mean, role. Come on. I wanted you I to mean, be Judas because he has the best song. He does. So he, you're he Jesus does. Christ. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're I no went, fool. I'll, Walk across my I'll, swimming pool. Good. You Wait, can you sing By the way, this? you've got to sing something for us. No. I'm come not, on. Can no, you sing a little no. to dream the impossible dream? To dream the impossible dream. I'm not saying that whole come thing. On, no, just a one little more bit. Word. Oh, oh come on, one doing, more no, verse. No, no, no. <laughs> but I know the words to fight, right? To fight the unbeatable foe, right? To That's bear what, with to bear with unbearable sorrow. sorrow, to go where the brave dare not go. This is my quest, right? To follow Who doesn't that, know that star. Well, you sing no it. matter how hopeless, no matter how far, <laughs> to strive for the right to You're be. You're doing great. Something. You're discovering a real She's musical great. theater junkie. Well, yeah. I'll tell you, here, look, I'll tell you how this happened. Actually, in uh, in seventh grade. A new nun came to St. Matthias School. Her name was Sister Jane, and she decided to have a Christmas cantata. And everybody tried. I didn't want bed, but I had tonsillitis. I got my tonsils taken out. Would you know, when I came back, I could actually sing. And so she said, you're in it. And I sang, it came upon a midnight clear. And everybody thought, well, that kid can kind of sing. And then about a month later, my mother and father took me to the theater. It was right around when The Jungle Book was coming out, which I was mesmerized by. And then I saw Oliver. And then I thought, that is what I want to do. I, I want to be, I want, I'm going to Broadway. And I actually did theater at Jesuit for four years. I became, I tried out for a professional show when I was 16 and got my equity card and started doing professional work in so a theater there. So what else have there. you done besides Man of La Mancha and Jesus Christ Superstar? Were you ever in Oliver? No, I never got to Oliver. I'm, I'm crushed by it. But but, <laughs> Not but I went to, uh, I attended Catholic University of America and got a, a double degree in theater and political science. We knew that. Yeah. And then you went on and to then, Loyola and, and then, got your Well, what happened degree. was I really wanted to, when I finished, I had gone on a couple of USO tours. And when I finished, my father said, you know, that's really a tough business. You ought to think about having something to fall back on. So why don't you come home and go to law school? And if after you finish law school, you want to go back, then go. 
And I went to Loyola Law School, and of course, I met my soon-to-be wife on the first day of law school. We got married, and then we had five beautiful children, and the rest is just history. So I'm stuck. So I really want to be an actor. I don't. This politics <laughs> stuff is well, maybe, my second maybe thing. you could have a second career. Uh, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm heading to. I'm going to Broadway if they'll have me. But I think maybe I can only mop up the stage now. Well, you you know, I think there is some theater in politics, right? Because there, well, in 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 a positive way. And one of the things we really wanted to talk to you about today, Mitch, is that extraordinary speech that that Brian mentioned that got so much attention. A lovely op-ed by Frank Bruni in yeah, the New York amazing. Times. In fact, I was going to read the. Uh, the first part of it, the title is Mitch Landrieu reminds us that eloquence still exists. And Frank wrote, "This could be a really are- tough interview, as you can tell." <laughs> I can tell. I, this is a, this is a- <laughs> well, listen, I I believe in giving props where props are deserved, and he writes. These are hard days of coarse language, of tweets and catcalls that appeal to the worst in us, not the best. Maybe that's why a big, sweeping, old-fashioned speech delivered in New Orleans on Friday made such an impression on me. It was a reprieve. It was an antidote. And let's talk about why you gave that speech. Uh, it was all about taking down four Confederate statues. But can you give us the context? Because this was the culmination of a very long process. Correct. Getting New Orleans to face its not so it, it, yeah. like it would, I, a I shameful history. Is I that fair? I can't give you the 30-year history. But generally, from the day that I was born, a couple months later was when my father took that first vote. So really, our entire political life, aside from trying to make government work well for people and trying to solve difficult problems, some of which have not yet been solved around the kind of things that we talk about every day from healthcare to education to crime, all that kind of stuff. Race has been a very important part of our need to move New Orleans. It, it could This could be related to other places, but this is where I grew up. So this is my wheelhouse and the South to a better place. So there's always been this concept of the new South and well, we never really got there versus the old South and why other parts of the country were growing and why we weren't. And when I became the mayor, after having been a legislator for 16 years and lieutenant governor for six, I had a very strong desire based on what Mary had done and my dad had done to to really have a conversation about race and for the city to think about not building the city back the way it was because it didn't, Katrina didn't cause all of our problems. It didn't create our education problems, our race problems, kind our crime problems. Sh- brought them in sharp relief. It, it, well, here's what it did. It made everything that was real that much more noticeable. So that which was beautiful and rich and deep, it made it much more so. And and the kind of things that we saw after Katrina, people helping each other, just really is a is a message to the rest of the country about even in our darkest times, we can find unity, which is why I'm hopeful about the country. But it also put a magnifying glass on the really dirty stuff and the nasty stuff and the bad stuff. And so as we started rebuilding the city physically, it's easier to build a city back physically than to repair a city soul. And so the mantra that we use preparing for our 300th anniversary, which is next year, was to build the city back the way it always should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time. So that's not just a physical thing. So if you come to New Orleans now, we've rebuilt 32 new schools, a bunch of healthcare centers. We're building a new airport. We're building a new riverfront. The issue then got to be about the public spaces. And this came from Wenton, Wenton, Marcelo. So I said, Wenton, I need you to help me curate the 300th anniversary. He said, do you know Louis Armstrong left because of those statutes? And I said, what statutes? He said, I, want, I need you to think about those statutes. And I said, what, what statutes are you talking about? He said, Robert E. Lee. I said, what's your problem with Robert E. Lee? He said, have you ever thought about who he is, what he stands for, why they're there? 
And I said, you know, honestly, what? And I, I, I never really did. I was kind of like everybody else. He said, well, look, you think about them. So I started thinking about them, and it became fairly obvious to me fairly quickly that those particular statutes, and I picked those four for a reason, were put up by the same group of people over the same period of time for a specific reason, which was to send a clear message that even though the Confederacy lost the war, they were still in control. Because they were put up, what, 16 up, years after yeah, the end of the yeah, Civil War? Were, yes, way at, they were put up substantially after. And they were put up with a specific purpose. And the specific purpose was enunciated when they put them up. Which so was? It, which was to demonstrate that the South was on the right side that even though the United States of America won, that they were wrong and that the South was not going to concede. And it was to send a message to who was still in control. And that white supremacy was superior specifically to African-Americans. We were genetically and in every other way and spiritually superior. Now, in a city that's 60% African-American, forcing African-Americans to walk by public property that they own having statues standing above them in reverence seemed to me to be perverse. It was Robert E. Lee and Robert E. Lee, P.G.T. Beauregard, Jefferson Davis were the three. And then there was another monument called the Liberty Monument that was put up in the 1890s to celebrate. Those three statues? No, to celebrate the fact that a number of police officers were killed who were trying to protect a biracial police department. So it was actually done to honor the people who killed the police officers for the wrong reason. And it was put up by the Klan. And I want to give our listeners a sense of the speech if they haven't heard it. These statutes are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized Confederacy, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. Why do you think for so long we were okay with all of this Confederate celebration? Listen, I think that race is really hard for us. It's hard for everybody to talk about. And I've said many times on this issue, we have made a lot of progress. I mean, John Lewis will remind us of that every day, who is one of the great heroes of of our time. But we're not finished. And this whole notion of of aspiring to a more perfect union is something that Americans really ought to think about on a regular basis. Given this last election, and by the way, we started this well before the election, so it really didn't contemplate anything having to do with the politics of what exists today. But even before that, we were really thinking about how the country could come together on issues of criminal justice, equity, police community relations, and just straight up racial stuff that we had. And it started. it, 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 it occurred to me that the way we curate our public spaces either informs that in a positive way or in a negative way. And if you just think from a mayoral perspective, and we're all into design and what our cities look like and how you build beautiful world-class cities, why would you have a public space that's the most central thing, sending a message that has never been true about your city? And so as we began this introspection, the people of the city started thinking, wow, you know, this is a new awakening that we're having, so let's deal with it. So this just wasn't about the statutes. The statutes are are just kind of a physical way to talk about a much deeper problem and say, how badly we how many times we walk by things that we don't notice every day. They're so symbolic and emblematic of sort of race in general. And I think one of the most moving parts of the speech was when you talked about a friend uh and and how he would explain this to his fifth grade daughter. Let's listen to that. Another friend asked me to consider these four monuments from the perspective of an African-American mother or father trying to explain to their fifth grade daughter why Robert E. Lee sat atop of our city. 
Can you do it? Can you do it? Can you look into the eyes of this young girl and convince her that Robin E. Lee is there to encourage her? How much pushback did you get for this? Because I imagine there were some it was, people it was who were pretty hopping mad. Huge, huge. Well, again, I, you know, I, I had been thinking about this, I mean, three, three and a half years ago was when I think I had the first conversation with it. It might have been three years ago. So it was well before the election. It was well before South Carolina. The city had been engaged in racial reconciliation discussions that we put together called the Welcome Table, where people of color and whites met and talked in small groups. So this has been, been kind of part of what we did. But then when South Carolina happened and Nikki Haley and the leaders did such a wonderful thing of taking that flag down in such a beautiful way, um, I said to myself, now is the time to call the question publicly about these monuments and basically said something really simple, which is, I think it's time for us to have a conversation about this. Well, you would have thought that, I mean, it was, it really got rough. So we had a bunch of community meetings that were all very aggressive. And then as soon as the legislature, as soon as the city council voted to take them down, lawsuits began. And so it took a two and a half year process with seven different courts, federal, state, and local, and 13 different judges to confirm that we actually had the authority to do what we were doing. Do you get a lot of uh, people angry on the streets, Frust- yelling uh, at you? What, what's the well, worst thing someone has all, said to you? Well, there's a beautiful park in New Orleans. I ride around on my bike every morning, and it is not uncommon for people in that park to yell at me, like, get out of this park. This is not your park. You're a dictator. We hate you. We hope that you stop being mayor tomorrow. There's actually one particular woman that does this the other day, does this all the time to me, which was really curious because when I went to church the other day, she was actually a Eucharistic minister. What? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it really got hostile and bad. Now, not everybody, I have to be at just, this is really clear. I know my city really well. Most of the people in the city wanted to take these down. But as you can say, this is a national issue. So people came from across the country into the city to use us as an example for others. So the alt-right was there, you know, and a couple of other groups. And it got really dangerous. And it required us to take these things down because of security reasons, three of them at night. And then we had to take Robert E. Lee down during the day for the same reason, security reasons, because of the electrical wires. But it required us to be very vigilant because subsequent to the election, the temperature in the country has gotten really hot. We've gotten worse at talking to each other. And it wasn't easy to do. But I think after the speech, to their credit, a lot of people have come up to me and said, you know, I really wasn't down with this, but now I get it and I understand. But there will be some people who will never forgive. And it's one of these things that it's it's like abortion or it's like the death penalty or it's like war and peace. It is a seminal issue that if someone you know is on the other side of it, no matter where you are, it's like that's a defining moment. And, you know, you stole our history and I'll never be for you. And I think for a lot of people, it leads to a series of questions like, where do you draw the line? Which people are okay to leave up and which people do you have to take down? I mean, do we do we tear down the Jefferson Memorial well, I, because I he was a slaveholder? Actually, I don't think it's that complicated. I think that you cannot go back and relitigate whether a human being was a good human being or not. Um, all of us come to life with our own faults, and, well, and do which you is judge why we people, go to confession as Catholics all the time. Do you judge people by the standards mm-hmm. of their time or our time? Well, I don't. I don't know that that's the issue either. In this instance, it is absolutely clear that you cannot rewrite history. History is history. The monuments are down, right? But the Civil War still took place, so we didn't erase history. What we did do, though, is we course-corrected something that a mayor did in 1890 that was wrong, 
which was to put in a place of reverence a statute that promoted a cause that denied humanity to millions of Americans. That act was wrong. We've got a lot more to talk about with Mitch Landrew, the mayor of New Orleans, right after this. New Orleans, as he says. New Orleans. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most... There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind. So find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And now we're back with Mayor Mitch Landrew talking to him from Aspen. I know Brian wants to talk a lot about cities and climate change, but I just want to put a button on this because I'm curious, Mitch, have or Mayor Landrew, have other have have other um, mayors, have other governors, have other leaders in the deep south contacted you? Are they wrestling with these same issues or would you like them to more? Well, you know, again, every city and every group of people take their own. You're being very diplomatic, but what do you think? No, no, no. I'm saying, I mean this seriously. I didn't like people not from New Orleans telling New Orleans what to do. We had a right to determine with our own property what we thought was appropriate. I will say to the people of America very clearly, though, we clearly have an issue with race. We also have one with class, and we also have it around a whole bunch of stuff, and we don't talk to each other well about the things that divide us. I happen to think they're a great source of strength, and I think it weakens us when we divide ourselves the way we are, and we can't even have a an adult conversation. So to the extent that it's a conversation starter? Yeah, start the conversation. But you have got to recognize, like white people need to recognize that African-Americans were horribly offended by going past those monuments. Listen, I'm not judging anybody. I had the same problem. And until Wenton told me about it, it never really occurred to me to think about it. But once I started thinking about it, and once I saw the truth, then I was like, all right, there's some things that I can admit without having to feel awful that maybe I had somebody that fought on the wrong side of the war. I mean, nobody today is responsible for anything that happened during the Civil War in that regard. And you can't spend your life talking about whose fault it was. I guess if people get excited about that, they can. I can tell you whose responsibility it is to fix it. It's ours. 
Some folks have called me and said, look, I thought about this and I want the monuments and send them to me. Some people have sent, have said, uh, look, I've thought about this and I don't want to go as far as you went. How can you curate these by being additive, which is interesting and you can do that. And some people have said, yeah, I want to do that too. And I said, good luck, but you know, really think a lot about this and be careful and be thoughtful. And by the way, be hard on the problem and soft on the people. There's a way to get through this that makes us better. And although it was hard in New Orleans, I have the full confidence that the people in New Orleans are going to get past this and we're going to be a better city because of it. So, Mr. Mayor, the last time before your speech, New Orleans was really in the national spotlight was around Katrina, which you referenced earlier. I was looking at some of these stats in preparing for this interview, and I was really stunned. You know, more than 80% of the city flooded, $75 billion of damage more than 100,000 people homeless. But then I found another stat that that staggered me maybe even more, which is that according to one study, which was a reputable group, a third of New Orleans' population was going to have to flee by 2100 because of rising sea levels. Basically, in my daughter's lifetime, there, not, there may not be a New Orleans as we know it today. What can cities or even states do on their own to fix this problem? I mean... Is it too late? Are we doomed to have to manage the consequences of this? Well, it's getting too late. It's not too late yet. I was in Miami yesterday, and Mayor Levine has talked a lot about Miami. He's the mayor of Miami. Everybody's focus has always been in New Orleans. New Orleans has said, look, you know, we we didn't get hit by Katrina because we stay up late drinking too much. You know, although- because most of your cities- Some people thought that, and we were Sin City, and, you know- God visited evil upon our heads because of that. Well, it's because most we of your city's below <laughs> sea level. We were, well, it was, it, we, we are the canary in the coal mine. There are m- tons of places around this country that are below and around sea. around the world, that too, are below, right? Yeah, that are below sea level. As a matter of fact, where the Washington Monument is, that hill is a berm that is supposed to be there for flood protection. And, of course, people now have seen as a result of Sandy, unfortunately, that the Northeast is vulnerable. When you look at the at the list of the most vulnerable cities, New Orleans is not at the top. Miami is there, and by the way, a ton of other places. So this idea of us being threatened by sea level rise is real, it's imminent, and it's at our doorstep. Now, New Orleans has a couple of other problems. One, we have coastal erosion that is happening quickly for a lot of different reasons. Some is because the Mississippi River is levied and the silt is not moving off into it naturally. Some is because the oil and gas pipelines cut through it, oil and gas that we produce for the rest of the country, and some is just sinkage. So when you put all four of those things together, we have what I would consider to be a slow-moving but imminent threat, which is why we're really focused on this. We've built a huge levee system, but if we don't get our hands around this climate issue, New Orleans, as you know it, or at least south of New Orleans, could cease to exist by 2050. So could Miami, and so could a lot of other places. So it's not just us, which is why mayors have been so engaged in this from the Kyoto Protocols to the Paris Accords. We had a 1,000 mayors from around the world in Paris. So when President Trump erroneously, wrongly said, we're not going to stay, bad mistake for the country, we said we can't abide by that. We have to keep going. We're not bound by the federal government. We can create a national policy by acting locally. And so mayors across America, Republicans, Democrat, Jim Brandon from like Indiana, Republic, I mean, Republican red state said, you know, I'm, I'm into this. And, you know, a lot of other have too. So we're actually trying to do the best we can to reduce our carbon footprint and to get ahead of this 
so that we don't get so far behind. And that's just something that mayors have decided to do because we can't, we have to govern, we can't wait. Can you do it without the federal government? I think we can. I mean, it would be much better to have them with us, but there's a lot of things we can do without the federal government. If 260 cities get together and decide, look, we're going to run a certain fleet of buses, we're going to have a certain number of bike lanes, we're going to retrofit all of our buildings with, you know, better stuff, we're going to work on the utilities that we regulate and what the uh, energy mix is that's coming in, there's quite a lot that we can do. So why do you think President Trump made the decision he did? I, I mean, know, I know, I know I mean, you can't get inside his head, but the, the reasons know. he gave were demonstrably false. I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, I have no idea. I, I, quit, I quit trying to figure it out. I can't, I don't, I don't spend any time worrying about that other than saying that's a shame because that's a mistake for the country. We're just going to move past them. And I think that's happening a lot. You know, again, we would prefer mayors of America want a constructive relationship with who's ever in Washington, D.C., but we cannot wait and we're not waiting on anything. We're doing our own stuff on infrastructure. We're doing our best we can, we can on healthcare. And then we're going to solve as many problems as we can. Mayor Bloomberg yesterday announced a $200 million challenge grant across all cities so that we can share best practices with each other. And we think the country can learn, the federal government can learn a lot from the innovation that's happening in cities across America. He's been a pretty phenomenal leader he's on this, hasn't he? Uh, he's just incredible. I mean, and you know, a lot of people give a lot of money away for a lot of causes, and that's all wonderful. But he has really focused his attention on making government work better and then creating better partnerships from the private sector to the government. And, you know, the guy just is, he's golden. He put his money where his mouth is. Not everybody agrees on all of his, his stances, but that's, you know, he's given mayors room to run. And, and by the way, he helps cities that are Republican, Democrat, that are left, that are right. He's into innovation and change. And he's given us a chance to compete with each other, which we love to do, you know, and we, and we share best practices all the time. We have, I know you have to go to a dinner, but just, I, I have to ask, you didn't mention Donald Trump in your, your now quite speech famous speech. about him. No, no, but. Uh, he takes up enough airtime, don't you think? What do you think of him? Uh, I think he's mostly wrong. I, I, I just think he's mostly wrong. Um, there are some admirable qualities about him, actually, which makes it so hard to watch him do so poorly. What are admirable he, qualities? Well, first of all, he's he's got really um, good instincts about other people that serve him well in a negative way. You know, you saw him take down a lot of different opponents that he should have never taken down because he's got an animal instinct for finding people's weaknesses that he can exploit. And so, you know, I would say it's admirable. It's kind of a weird thing. Like when you see a warrior fighting, you're like, that guy's got special skills because everybody wants to say he doesn't know what he's talking yeah, about. That's not true. admirable if you're in Lord of the Flies. Yeah, exactly. What I'm saying is in a, in a warrior kind of way, you look at that and you go, wow, that's impressive. That guy got to be president of the United States. So you can't completely dismiss that when people say he's got no talent. That's not true. This is not a man that's not smart. He is smart. And and he is he is tough in a bad way. And in my opinion, his, his unwillingness to think deeply about things causes him to be half wrong all the time. And, and when you're half wrong, you're never right because you never, you never really think about things clearly and deeply. And it's very, very troubling. I think that he has, in a demonstrable way, made people who shouldn't agree with him think that he's fighting for them. And I think that a lot of folks think, well, the pox on everybody's house in Washington. You know, I don't really care about all of this other stuff. At least he's fighting for me and I'm hurting really badly. Do you think and the, somebody focused their attention on me. And do so, they still think that though? Well, I don't I think most of the polls indicate that his base is not falling away from him. And I think they know he doesn't tell the truth. 
I mean, the president, clearly, he doesn't tell the truth most of the time. And I think it's just kind of a way of being. It's not a, and and I think they don't care because he has somehow demonstrated to them that I am fighting for you. And in this moment, they they are feeling so left out and so forgotten and so not known and so like people have been unaware of them that the fact that he's focused on them, they forgive everything else. So one of the things I learned about the monuments is that when people are on your side and they like you, they'll almost forgive anything that you do. And when they don't like you, they will hate you for everything that you do. So post-monument talk, even people who are my friends before who are against me, now I can't do anything right. I can't pick the garbage up right. I can't drive my car right. I can't fix the potholes right. Nothing's right. It's like when you get in a fight with somebody that you love. I mean, the fight's not always about what the fight's about, right? And And meantime, the Democratic Party, your party, is in the weakest position it's been in nearly 100 years. There's a major divide between the kind of the pragmatic wing um, and the progressives led by Sanders and Warren. How do you think the party can come back? Because your sister, for instance, was the last Democratic senator from the Deep South, and she well, lost in 2014. I, I, I tell you, the premise of your question is is interesting to me. It seems like the Republican Party is in complete and total shambles. You've got Donald Trump, and then you've got a whole bunch of But they're other running stuff. the White House and the Congress no, that's, that's, and the legislatures. That's, that's, that's true, but how long is that going to last? What's it going to look like? Is this just a moment and then we're going to come out of it, or are we cr- forming a new way of governing? I, don't, I think we don't know that yet. I think it's too early to tell. I think it's pretty clear that the Republic. I'm, I'm going to get to the Democrats in a second, but they have a bunch of different factions that are all over the place, and you won't see this bust loose until whenever Donald Trump leaves office, which may be in four years or it may be in eight. But the next fight, that that's going to be very interesting. On the Democratic side, you see us licking our wounds on the national level in a pretty dramatic way. Um, and as every party begins to rebuild itself, you're going to start having fights about left, middle, and center, and how that works out in some fashion is going to be related to how President Trump does in the next couple of years. And then what the public sees, so you asked me a question before, is does you, does his base still think that? Unless and until his base starts peeling off of him, congressmen on the Republican side are going to continue to back him. That's just how the politics works. They're not in my or opinion, they'll be and this outflanked is, on the right. Or they'll right? be outflanked on the right. So that's a political equation for them. And until that base starts eroding, so everybody said, oh, it's terrible because his approval rating is the lowest it's ever been. Well, let me tell you something. His approval rating amongst his base is directly related to what the congressmen need to be secure in that district. When they start feeling insecure in their districts, right, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them when they go home for health care this week and how that works. But if they don't do that, they're going to stay with him because- one of the kind of unspoken deals is, well, even if I disagree with him, and even if I think he's wrong most of the time, he's going to help us on tax reform. And by the way, we got Gorsuch, and we're likely to get the Supreme somebody else, and then we'll have the Supreme Court for 30 years. So, like, we'll put up with whatever the president has to deal with. So that's kind of a—that's the deal. On the Democratic side, I think, you know, the Democrats are trying to figure out what in the heck went wrong, and how did the Democrats lose being the champions— for the middle class. So we need to go listen to people. And they may be saying, you know what? We're not going to rely on Washington for anything anymore. And we're going to just really focus on what we have to do in our day-to-day lives. Is that why you would never run for president? Well, that's a, that's one of the reasons why. I know it's an incredible thing to say, but that might not be where the action is in years to come. I know that's kind of a crazy thing for people to think about, but the most innovative stuff that's happening in the country is happening on the ground. In the streets, in cities, in cities and, in country, and in counties and in rural America. And by the way, 
this whole notion now that rural America is divided from urban America, I, I don't want to say that's a complete myth, but I'm telling you that I can prove to you in a very demonstrable way how urban areas rely on rural areas for our lifeblood, and they rely on us. If you just think about farm to table, if you think about getting fish from the Gulf into the restaurants in New Orleans, if you think about getting the corn from the fields in Iowa to where we need it to put gas in our cars, we are inextricably linked to one another. Interesting and Iowa by, reference and, and for somebody way, now running for president. By the, way, oh, <laughs> the reason, by the way, in case anybody wants to read into that, the reason I said that was because when Katrina hit and we closed the port of New Orleans, the farmers in Iowa took a dramatic hit because they couldn't export their goods. I mean, so we, we, are, we are completely connected. And so while people try to tear us apart, and say, well, you know, they're, they're different. Well, we read the same Bible in New Orleans that we do in small towns yeah, all across America. Yeah, but I don't think this America. is just a media deal. I mean, there's a massive political difference between the way rural Americans vote and the way urban well, Americans I vote. Think, and also I, just attitudes and values. And I think sort of, I think there's a lot of class condescension think, between th coastal and rural I, well, areas. That's, no, no, you're talking about the coast. I think that's true. But not all, all cities are on the coast. I mean, yeah. and and by the way, it's not all peoples in the cities that think like that. So this notion that there are only elites that live in cities, well, that's not true about New Orleans, and that's not true about Louisville, and it's not true about a lot of other cities, uh, Albuquerque, you know, San Diego, all across America, cities are doing great things. And by the way, 85% of people in the, city, in the country are going to live in cities. Soon. Oh, I know. And that's, that's where huge. all the demographic trends are coming. And so this notion that somehow we're different or we're, we're aliens or one's a Martian, you know, that's, that, that, that is kind of of the moment. That is going to change over time as demographic trends change. And I would just continue to say this. The more we can do stuff together, the better we're going to be. Diversity is a strength, not a weakness. Inclusion is better than exclusion, you know, and hanging out with other people that are different from you, you might learn something from time to time, and we ought to do more of it's it. It's true. Brian Stevenson talks about the importance of being proximate, sure. like getting out of your silo, hanging out with people from different socioeconomic it's, it's, levels, And that's why we're races, all here at the Aspen religion. Ideas Festival. <laughs> it's easy. Let me tell you this. It's easy to scream something nasty across a tweet at somebody else. It's really hard to do it when you're sitting across the dinner table Believe from Believe me. I know. <laughs> no, I, I know. know that. I have it too. And we need and we need to have more FaceTime with each other. Absolutely. Well, Mitch Landry, we're going to get in big trouble because we're keeping you. you from your dinner. <laughs> but we could talk Thank to you, you all, me. all night if if you'd let us. Thank you so much. Thank Great you to be so with much. you. Thank you. I'll come back. A huge thank you this week to the Aspen Ideas Festival for hosting and recording this conversation. Thanks especially to Zach St. Louis from the Ideas Festival for coordinating all of the technical details on the ground, even Brian's airline tickets. So, Zach, <laughs> a big thank you for that. Zach, you earned a special place in heaven. <laughs> As usual, thanks to our producer, Gianna Palmer, our sound engineer, Jared O'Connell, Allison Bresnick for her social media prowess, and to Emily Bina and Nora Ritchie for their editorial support as well. What would our theme music be without Mark Phillips? I, I shudder to think, Katie. Thanks, as always, to Mark. Katie Couric and I are the executive producers of this show. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So please leave us a message at 929-224-4637 or email us at comments at You have no idea how excited we get 
when we get a comment or a phone call, Gianna forwards them to us on our email. Brian and I squeal with delight. Anyway. Like so, little so, schoolgirls. <laughs> We're all at Twitter. Also, speaking of Twitter, find us on social media. <laughs> I'm at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and katie.couric on Snapchat. And you can find me on Facebook as well. And Brian, your Twitter handle is... At B. <laughs> Lastly, if you enjoy our show, please make your appreciation known by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. That keeps us in business, everyone. Anyway, <laughs> Au revoir. Right. that does it for us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next. Well, you'll hear us next time. Theodore Roosevelt explored uncharted Amazon territory, helped modernize American football, and won a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm Erin McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Mental Floss and the host of History Versus, a new podcast that shares the inside stories behind some of history's ultimate fighters. Season one tackles Theodore Roosevelt, who went head-to-head with seemingly unbeatable foes like corruption, time, and death itself. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.